Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 386. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Jack. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 386 you're listening to. My guest today, of course, is the second part of our interview with self-proclaimed lucky bastard, Grammy-winning engineer Richard Dodd, who, of course, has worked with Tom Petty, George Harrison, Roy Orbison, Wilco, Keb Moe, many, many, many people. And he's really good at what he does. So... Happy to bring you the second part of our interview. If you haven't heard the first part, head on back to WCA number 385 for that. Richard Dodd, coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about your audio community. I'm very fortunate to be a part of a couple groups of audio friends, we'll just say. One of those groups is the Bay Area Audio Nerds. Very self-descriptive there, right? Bay Area tells you the location, tells you who we are, audio nerds. What I love about getting together in a group of people like this is not just the ability to talk with other people about the things that we have in common, which in this case is audio, but it's the camaraderie. It's the fact that not only do we have something in common, but it's just that that purposeful attempt to go out and socialize and the icebreaker of course is the audio part you may not know some of the people when you join in a group or organization such as this but by the end of one gathering you probably are going to get a pretty good idea of who everybody is and i'm here to encourage you all to put together your own audio nerd type organizations whatever you want to call it in this case friend of the show and of course uh former wca guest rado peter is responsible for the audio nerd group sometimes it just takes one person just to declare hey we're going to put together a group and start inviting people so no matter where you live anywhere in the world find one or two other audio professionals and reach out to them make a declaration you're going to form a group and those groups can be as organized or disorganized as you want. Uh, in our case, we just meet the first Monday night of every month at a local bar and have a, have a drink or two and hang out and talk shop, see how everybody's doing, and it's a lot of fun. Now, if you are in an area where it's hard to get to the group, maybe the group can meet like a mastermind group does. And for those of you that don't know, like a mastermind group is typically a group of people, also with a common interest, who gather typically in online Zoom calls to talk about common issues and kind of uh, encourage each other in the endeavors that one is taking part in. These groups can be a lot of fun, not only from a social point of view, but also from a, uh, a growth point of view. You may be holed up in your world of audio and your only participation out there is through forums. And to actually get in front of another person, whether it's in a Zoom call or in, or in person, uh, to have that one-on-one -on -one interaction with somebody, I think can be very beneficial. It can help us get out of our shells if we're somewhat uh, introverted. Uh, it can also help us feel a sense of community, like we have people that we can turn to. 
but it can also spur different ideas. Some of you out there might say, well, I can't do that because, you know, those are my competitors. Well, okay, fine. Yeah, to some degree. But also, it's a chance to meet people who might be better for another project than you are. And it doesn't always have to be, you know, these people are my enemy or my competitor. They are your peers. And some would say, well, you know, there's not enough work to go around. I can't be fraternizing with, you know, people who do the same job as I do, which I just, I don't understand that at all. If I'm the right person for a gig and an artist chooses me, great. And if I'm not, that's fine too. And truth be told, when you get together with a group of audio professionals, we can quickly find out who the people are who give us trouble in terms of not paying their bills or uh, being a general pain in the ass. So yeah, audio professionals get together and they compare notes and go, have you worked with this person? Yeah, oh, pain in the ass, don't work with them, yeah. And it's pretty interesting how that happens. And, you know, I laugh, but realistically, you can kind of avoid some disasters with clients that are problematic if you talk to the other folks in your community because they can warn you and say, oh my gosh, I had a disaster with this person. Now, that's not to say that, you know, people don't deserve second chances, yada, 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 but at the same time, it's a great way to find out who your troublemaker clients are out there so you can avoid them if at all possible. And groups like this can also be a great resource. You know, you can either lend or rent pieces of gear to your fellow audio professionals. You can share gear lists and say, oh yeah, here's what I got, here's what you got. Okay, well, I, I could use one of those for this this one session. Do you mind if I rent or borrow it? And you know, what how you choose to handle that, that's up to you. So with these groups comes the communal aspect, the resource aspect, the uh, information sharing aspect about, you know, clients and other ideas. It doesn't just have to be about troublesome clients. And you also get to learn who's out there in your community operating. But remember, the idea has to start with at least one person. So if you have the idea, find one other, create the organization, and start inviting people in your community to the hangouts, the, the meetups, whatever you want to call them. Like I said, you can get as uh, loose or serious as you want. Some people will form, you know, official organizations with, you know, treasurers and note keepers and, or you could just go have beers or coffees, you know, whatever you decide. So however you decide to proceed with this kind of concept, uh, I encourage you not to stay holed up in your commercial studio or your home studio, stick in the forums. I would highly encourage you to get out with your other audio professionals and form a group that you can meet with at least once a month so that you can have that sense of community. Give it a shot. It's pretty fun. That's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Evan are two of the nicest people on the planet, easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might've met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might've heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. 
I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You can talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's get to it. Part two of our interview with Richard Dodd here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. What was your impression of studios in America as compared to England? <laughs> Very different, much looser, but much more innovative as well. I mentioned that the it was the engineer that I didn't like. It was set in his ways. That wasn't uncommon in England to have a way of doing it and that's it. This is a terrible generalization, but my immediate different opinion was the difference was it was more cowboy. It was another <laughs> way of doing it. And to be fair, everything I saw was wrong. <laughs> you know, doing it the wrong way, you're not, you know, but it was fun because I tended to not do it the right way either. And I thought, it was, I thought I was taking a gamble using a different mic for something or treating it in a different way or putting it in a different position. And that was almost de rigueur in the US. And I, I love that concept of being free to be better and putting yourself out there. It was great. It was fantastic. But I was still being English and being brought up the was. I still had a lot of things I was set in my ways. You know, it was sometimes hard to break out. I had to force myself to do something different. And I've, I've always done that. As soon as I found myself getting into a rut of things that worked, I would force myself to do projects, whole projects, without using my favorite gear. Break the cycle. Well, yeah. Plus, I needed to find out what was a Blackface 1176 and what was me. 
because the answer is a black face right. 1176, whatever the question. That was my life, a lot of the 80s and 90s, was knowing a way of doing something and doing it, and people liking it. That's the worst thing is when people say, oh, that sounds great. You think, oh, shit, I better not change it, you know? I know. I better create a preset for that, or I better, I better mark that. That's down. really helped me finally leave and go freelance, was one day I came in to do a session. I'd see all the faces. I've got the mics where I have them. And I'm at an Eve console that I spent four years working on. And before <laughs> I turned the monitors up, I started putting EQ in. Before you even heard anything. Before I heard anything, yeah. I put this preset the EQ. And I thought, shit, what am I doing? I haven't even heard anything. And then I remember, again, it's one of those milestone moments. I turned the monitors up. And I was ready to go. You know, I walked in the room. Two minutes later, apart from tweaking the Q mix, we were ready to put the light on. I thought I could have phoned this in. Mm. And then I realized, how much better could I have made it if I'd have... You know, you can't go back on that session because now they're hearing it and everyone's happy. It'd be stupid to do that. And so I thought, one, I'm never going to do that again. And two, I think I need to... Especially when I decided that after I did hear it, it was actually good. I literally could have phoned it in. I realized that I needed more challenge. I needed to feel that edge of, is it going to work today? What's it going to be like? Get a little more cowboy into your uh, your, your workflow. The, the cowboy element came before actually witnessing the cowboys, you know, because other than that, it was just right. a case of hearing all the stuff coming from America and think, shit, why can't I sound that good? Because mm. I liked the sound of all the American stuff and some of the British stuff. I just loved all the American stuff. It just sounded just so much more musical to me, sonically, than the English stuff, which sounded thick and solid, whereas the American stuff sounded on the edge, wrong and right. It would take a lot to dissect that comment, but right. that's the way I felt it. And the English way was the right way, and the American way was the interesting way. It's just the way it was for me. And, yeah, it was just a very interesting when I actually did get to work in America officially, mm -hmm. it was quite remarkable. I loved it. But so different, so very different in studio etiquette and attitude. Completely different, much more friendly. Did you feel uncomfortable? No, because I had an advantage. Again, think of the time. We're talking about the 80s into the 90s. Being English in America wasn't a bad thing. Just being English in America. That's for sure. And yeah. so, <laughs> I don't know if it's because of the accent or because of the curiosity of the Americans. And of course, this doesn't cover every American, just the ones I met. People would listen. I don't know whether they had their opinion of English engineers or English people. But if they did, most of them, it was a positive as far as I was concerned. They were listening for some clue because I later discovered that we're no different, really. The grass is greener on the other side. Lots of Americans were thinking, shit, how can I get it to sound like the English stuff? And I, not all English, but this Englishman was saying, if only I could get it to sound like the American stuff. And one of the things I discovered that I didn't like at working my way in England was I loved Neve sound of Neve consoles. But what I realized was it didn't do it any favors to go through it twice and tape. There's color, and then there's blur. Neve hasn't sounded better for me 
since they took the modules out of the console. That's what Meeves sound like. It's what you have access to today, outboard pre's. But when you've got it in the console, and to get from the EQ to the monitor, you've got to go through half a dozen transformers. It's not such a great thing. And then you mix it and go through <laughs> another half dozen, you know. So <laughs> unless you're completely in love with lots of transformers in your signal path, it's not necessarily the best way to do it. I discovered the hybrid tracking it on a Neve and going to a studio where they had an American console or a different British console like a Kadak or Helios, where it was just different. It wasn't so tank-like. You just have any different EQ points and curves and attitudes. That's where I started to hear sound, tones and stuff. And at that point, well, in the 80s, I mean, wasn't the SSL becoming... Oh, God, SSL. Sorry, Don. Yeah, wasn't that becoming the dominant console? I was working at my studio on an older Neve with 1073s and stuff. It was our, our new Neve. 1971 and this maintenance guy Dave Hawkins said hey Richard listen to this he bought me in a channel strip he said check this out and let me know what you think so I put some mics through it and I put some music through it and I said what is it he says well it's a new console manufacturer I said, I said it's awful he goes yeah he said but they've got some good ideas I said but it sounds crap what we didn't know at the time was they also had a thing they called total recall and automation <laughs> coming up. So all I knew was it was going to be called SSL and it sounded like shit. They got it in the wrong order. It should be SLS. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I was never a fan. I've used them and I've done some good work on them, I think. Yeah. Best looking console, without a doubt. Sexiest looking console, bar none. Beautiful aesthetics, but no soul. Well, I don't even know about the soul. But, you know, there are good people and bad people. They've both got souls, you know? Yeah, that's true. It wasn't for me. The cost of automation meant VCAs. Totally unnecessary to put your things. That's like sticking a plastic bag over the singer's head and then say, sing. Stupid. But stops them getting wet, you know? I mean... It's ridiculous. But as an industry facility going forward, it's brilliant. Uh -huh. Absolutely stunningly brilliant. And the answer to not having a VCA was Neve's NECAM, <laughs> which was, as you know, a mechanical moving fader. So you had the automation without the VCA. <laughs> but the automation on NECAM was automated. Shun sometimes, eventually. It was inaccurate and slow and frustrating because it was harder to mix with automation on both consoles than it was to mix without because I didn't trust them. So yeah. I'm forever triple checking that they actually did it. So it's the, the fatigue was tremendous, unless you didn't care, in which case it was great. You just trusted it and find out later that you didn't actually get all of the kick drum on the mix or whatever it is that decided to not play back at the right level or mute correctly or whatever the case might be. You know, so I had that thing, I guess it's a control problem that I have, but I didn't trust the gear unless it was purely analog and manual. I didn't trust it. And even then I didn't trust it. 
I'd already be doing this mega scan. You know, the number of times people say, how did you hear that? Because I assigned myself to not listening to the fun part. I listened to find out what's not fun. If that was my job. Smiles for everybody else. I want to make sure that nothing got through that I didn't know about. And taking on that role, I guess, enhanced my career because it helps people. They know they can walk out with something that has no faults. It might not be good, but it has no faults. Yeah, yeah so that's part of that. But I, jumping around again, back to your question, moving away from England, I wasn't ready, really, to move away. I had clients, as I've already mentioned, come in to do jingles, and I had offers from those clients retroactively. I, I just purchased my first home in 76. So you were making enough money back then to buy a home. I guess, you see, because... I wasn't spending any. I was at work. Uh, you were at the studio all the time. All the time. I guess it wasn't much fun for anybody else to be around, but I was having a ball. Because other than work and family, I could care less about anything. It's work. That was my life. As far as I was concerned, that's what there was. 100% plus committed to doing a good job. And you weren't buying up any gear no. for no, yourself No, I still got the first two pieces of gear working. I bought. I did actually buy... Dave Hawkins, the studio, he became the London rep for DBX. Mm. He first introduced me to the 119, which is a little stereo consumer box. And that was the antidote to FM radio, the, the idea behind it, because it had an expander. So you could mm -hmm. uncompress. You know, you know you can't do that, but that was the idea. You could right. uncompress, but it also had compression the other way. And it was stereo. It was RCA's in and out, minus 10 device. But I mixed an album through. It sounded great. <laughs> I've worked with this client who's a complete idiot. He just didn't understand the principle of you can't just keep pushing things up. So I, I introduced him to this magic box from America. And what I could do is an absolute brick wall limiter of the day. So, yeah, if you want it louder, just push it up. Sure, push it up. <laughs> Actually sounded good, but, I mean, terrible amount of compression. But, but oh, yeah. brilliant, too. This is absolutely wonderful. But anyway, so then, seriously, he, he got me a, a 160, an original DBX 160 when they first came out. But same period, 74, 75-ish. And you can tell the early ones because over the threshold control, there's two red LEDs. They later changed it to one amber and one red so you could see which side of the threshold you were. But I remember I loved that. Plugged it in. It was fantastic limiter. And he took it off me. About a month after I had it, he said, because they'd sent him an update. I had to change the resistor, made it quieter. And so he did the update, and I plugged it in, put it back. You kept the rain, put it back. So, yeah, I'm very much, if I like something and I find what it does, I don't want it to be something else. I want it to be able to reliably like it. I want it to be better. I want it to be great. So I have those still. I'm selling everything else, but I have those. And that was pretty amazing thing but you're right I didn't really invest in gear especially when it started to hint at things getting better I was told they were getting better and they weren't you know I've got this new console coming out everybody's going to want and it's shit and yet the one console that came out that everybody should have wanted was really hard to get which is the Harrison I had to doodle at night design my perfect console and then this Harrison came out it's like Someone's been looking at my dreams. <laughs> this is it. It wasn't, but it was very nearly it. Very nearly. It was 
pretty amazing. But again, you know, it had its shortcomings. And it's not like I could buy a console, buy a better tape machine. I couldn't do that. So I bought a house, which was cheaper, much cheaper. Yeah, and a great thing to, to have. To Well, plus it's a different era. My first house in dollars of the day was about $50,000. And of course, I had a mortgage wow. on a variable interest rate because <laughs> we didn't have fixed rates in England. So basically, all I was doing was sleeping and paying the bills. But I was working. And just because of ignorance, the house values, I happened to buy in a really good area. And when I sold it in 84, so I sold it eight years later, it quadrupled in value. I sold it in a day. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. Even back then. Absolutely. Amazing. So you sold the house. Is that when you moved to America? No. I was still working in England. One of the amazing things that happened to me was I used to do work as well in private studios as a way of getting experience and, you know, you're working with nothing. I'm working in a quasi-professional environment, but with some very talented uh -huh. people. And it's people that teach you the most, you know, you don't learn from gear, you learn yeah. with gear. But working in independent studios and, as I said, working with some fantastic people and learning from them, I was doing a project with Mike Moran in his studio. Mike Moran is a an extremely talented musician, producer, and an artist as well. He actually did a Eurovision Song Contest with Minty DePaul. And he's filmed scores and worked a lot with Freddie Mercury and other great artists. And he had his own studio, so we would have fun there because he, he was brilliant. And the environment was just magical. It was just a house with gear in it. So it was a lot of tap dancing you had to do to get things to right. But what we all shared was this standard, like... The environment didn't dictate the standard. The output would be of the highest standard. No one would ever know that it wasn't done in the most expensive, well-equipped studio in the world because we were doing it. Mm -hmm. It was a great camaraderie. And he was very influential, Mike. One of the jobs he had was to do music for TV and movies. It was very unionized and very strict and very complicated to sync music with TV production. And there was one gentleman who ran the music department, Keith Morgan, unfortunately late Keith Morgan, great guy. He ran the music department for Yorkshire Television, an independent television company in Britain. Mm -hmm. He worked out a way with the technicians at Yorkshire to combine video, the SMPTE timecode, SMPTE timecode for your listeners is uh, hours, minutes, seconds, and frames clock that everyone yeah. refers to on a project. So everybody knows where that part point is. And he worked out how to, or had the technicians work out how to build a box that read the time code that any given dialed in point on lever switches, you'd mimic the time code you wanted. You'd have an LED readout of the time code. And when it reached the LEDs, the time code reached the preset number that you dictated, it would close a contact on this box. And this contact would start a URI click generator, which is a seconds and frames click made by URI, half to you, half rack. So consequently, at any given point, you could have a click start. So you could have your counting start. And so you'd know where the downbeat was and the musician, the composer could write to that and know where all his sync points were. And they had this magic book of if you needed a hit point at this time code from this time code, 
this would be your tempo. So you could dial in the tempo, the frame rate, and they'd be able to hit these door openings or shocks or whatever. And with this device and with another terrible device made by Audio Kinetics called a Q-Lock, we could synchronize the multi-track tape machine and the video together. It would lock the tape to the video. So they were all running at the same time and they all had the same click. So the click could get recorded onto the tape machine. And consequently, we could do music outside of a sound stage. You know, we could actually do it in a home environment of pneumatic tape. Instead of running mag film in a mag film equipped studio, we had a kind of portable setup and it worked. A lot of headache, but it worked. So we did that. And one day, Keith Morgan called me. He said, we've got a program. It's going to be a three one-hour movie. We're going to show three consecutive nights, like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. It's about the troubles in, in Ireland. He said, and it's called Harry's Game. So what I've got, I've got this Irish band, this Irish folk band, to come up with a theme tune. He said, 30 seconds, 45 seconds for the outro credits. So he said, they're in Ireland, in Dublin. He said, so I want you to go over there and record them. I'll send you what it is. And I've just got this, this demo, 30 seconds of acoustic guitar and vocal. Girl singer, sounded nice. It's in Gaelic, so I've got no idea what she's singing about. And we arranged to go over a weekend to record it Saturday and Sunday at Windmill Lane Studio in Dublin, which I'd never been to. But on the plane <laughs> going over, I was sitting next to Keith. He said a couple of things, Richard. He said, we're going to need a version that's over two and a half minutes because we just got permission from the television supervisory board that we can advertise the music at the end of the show. This music is available on, which they don't normally do, but means it was in Gaelic. They didn't really count it as being anything serious anyway. So they said, yeah, why not? So they got permission. He said, so we need enough to make it a record. So I thought, okay, well, you know, makes no difference to me how long it is. He said, that brings me to the other thing. We need an arrangement and a producer. I said, Oh, I said, who's that? He said, that's you. <laughs> you know, we're meeting the band for the first time. This is Friday night. We're flying over. We're in the studio Saturday. And this is Friday afternoon. We're flying over to Dublin. I thought, oh, shit. song's only 30 seconds long. I was wondering what they were going to do for the other 15 seconds for the outro. You know, just obviously just repeat something or something. We got there and I met them and they weren't the most receptive. That's the politest way I could put it to this English guy coming over. Because was this all new information to them as well? No, but the leader of the band, it was a family. It was two brothers and a sister. The youngest sister was too young to be in the band, but she was apparently talented as well, but I never met her. So we got the two guys and the girl. The older brother, Kieran, was very much the patriarch, as it were, of the unit. He was the boss. Fortunately, he was a talented musician, as they all were, but he was very strong, mm -hmm. very opinionated very type A, double A. And he didn't like, I mean, and English is their second language. They come from Donegal, which if you're into geography at all, is actually in Ireland, but it's on the top left-hand corner of Ireland, right next door to Northern Ireland, which is British. And so when there was troubles, most of it centered or started, emanated from the Northern part of Ireland, not Northern Ireland. So, they were staunch IRA supporters, which can be problematic. And at that time was deadly because both sides were intransient. And, you know, the method of the IRA was terrible, but the goal was understandable. 
uniting a country is kind of understandable. Mm-hmm. You, you've got somebody else occupying a bit of it. It's tough to take. But maiming and killing isn't the best answer. Anyway, so, but that's staunch IRA support, or Kieran was. That's when I was there in this little room in this house where they had a acoustic guitar, a Wurlitzer, a flight case, and a small harp. When Keith said to Kieran, we need something longer than two and a half minutes because we can make a record. And Kieran was the writer. But as it turned out, he put his brother Paul's name down as writer because he had a publishing deal. And Yorkshire TV required the publishing as part of the deal. So he gave the, supposedly it was written by Paul. So that's how they got around that because Paul didn't have a publishing deal. (laughs) But all the questions about what to do fell on Kieran. And Keith just wasn't getting any response. He didn't have any input as to how to do this. Either he didn't have any idea, which I doubt, or he, did, he didn't want to do it, which is probable. So Keith said, turned to me, he said, well, you've got your work cut out, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I remember physically looking around and trying to be nice and trying not to hate them because their attitude isn't professional. Not because they're Irish, but because their attitude isn't professional. It was tough. So out of curiosity, I said, uh, what's in the flight case? He said, oh, it's a new thing we've got. It's a synthesizer. I said, really? I said, what one is it? He says, a Prophet 5, which is pretty good. I wasn't a keyboard player, not a musician, but I know a lot about instruments. It's polyphonic, number one, right. which opens up a, a whole gamut of things. Plus, I've been around people that are good with synthesizers. Stanley Meyer's assistant the ranger I told you about on my very first session, his assistant was Hans Zimmer. Oh, no kidding. Absolutely. Wow. And Hans was a whiz with all this new shit. As much as Stanley could give a monkeys about it, Hans was all over it, you know. He's like, and, and he was, had his own talents as well. But, I mean, he had a talent for getting something out of this new technology. And so I've been around lots of people that could get some good sounds. Mike Moran, for example, could get good sounds out of synthesizers. Those that knew with any instrument, it's what you put in is what you get out. So I thought, well, maybe I can, something I know about, you know, obviously I know about acoustic guitars and Wurlitzers, but I'd listen to the song and the song was haunting, atmospheric vibe to it, even though it was on acoustic. And so there was another thing I experienced from going back to the Ashley days at Lansdowne in 1969. One of the engineers there was a brilliant, called John Maxwith, brilliant. Another asshole, though. I mean, he hated musicians, hated them. But my God, what he could do with them was stunning. And he had this little thing that after every session, he would get whoever was around just to sing a note into a microphone. You know, like, ah, oh, whatever, to a microphone. And he'd record them. He'd get them to do it again and again. He created this idea of multiple looped vocals that you would have first heard most likely on a commercial recording of 10cc, I'm Not In Love. Mm-hmm. Max Swift predated that by half a decade. And he played this thing and they had four speakers at Lansdowne. And he'd mixed this thing with all these multiple voices, like thousands of vocals just doing R and different notes and that and a bottle of wine and it was the end of the world. You know, it was just <laughs> incredible. So it was one of those things that affected me and I just couldn't get rid of it. Couldn't lose this, this sound. And I heard Not In Love, of course. That's a great record. And that may have influenced me too. But I set about The Prophet, and I think I dialed Patch 1-1, you know, whatever, you know, whatever the first. And it's a pad. 
So I said to Kieran, can you play this and just play the basic chords and we'll have Moya sing her. She'll sing. So I had her on like a FET 47 and Kieran playing this DI Prophet 5. And the studio had two digital reverb units, neither of which I'd seen before. One was a Yamaha 01, which is like the granddaddy of the Yamaha digital ones. Never seen it before or since. And the other was the Sony that they recalled and had to destroy. Sony had this fabulous digital reverb unit, but apparently they had poached some software or something, so they had to recall them all and destroy them. Anyway, I used both of them on this record, and I wasn't really that much into reverb, but Moya's voice into this contraption, these contraptions, it was almost like listening to Max Swift's Million Voices, you know? She's such a wonderful, wonderful voice. So there we are. I'm in the studio. It's MCI console, MCI machines, and I'd given them the arrangement I wanted. With this bit, this bit, a middle bit, and we do this bit and this bit, and that should add up to two and a half minutes. So Kieran said, okay. So we do that, and she sings, and there's this whole section in the middle where there's just this pad, <laughs> nothing, you know. And I said, I'll tell him what to do afterwards. So I recorded this. And then I got Kieran to add another pass on the pad, just adding some lower single note stuff, just to give it some more build towards the end. Mm-hmm. And then we set about filling out the song. We got them to do backing vocals and being family. There's nothing better than family. Oh, yeah. I played in a band with a brother and sister singer. It was amazing. Yeah, they just... So when you consider it's not only family, but they can all sing and they're all in tune. So you got three people giving you the sound of five or six just by interplay the harmonics and everything. It's just phenomenal. So I'd stack them, track them up two or three times. So I've got this big natural sung chorus. And then we've got this other bit, this middle bit. So I got them singing all the notes in the key, any octave they could get onto a multi-track, separate multi-track. And so I got lots of them, a la John Matt Swift. And so I had about 20 tracks of various versions of notes of three people and maybe more. Maybe I filled up all 24, I don't know. Then I'd mix them down onto quarter-inch and I made loops, tape loops, endless loop of the note. Yeah. And running around the studio to make it long so you wouldn't get too much of a blip when the, when the edit went through. You know? And once again, I, I hate to interrupt, Richard, but just for the for the younger audience, so to make a loop in those days, would you agree it was typically mic stands that you were using yeah. to you know, loop the tape yeah. out and bring it around and back into the tape machine? Absolutely, yeah. So what I'd do is I'd make loops of these notes and eventually I'd put them all onto another part of the 24 track. So they can coincide with each other, pre-mixed. So I'd get one track which had had 40 or 50 vocals on one note on a track in stereo. And I'd do that again for the other notes that I have. And I then put a mix, a two-track mix of the song onto two tracks of that multi-track. So I've got these endless loops, like three, four minutes of R's of all these different notes, hundreds and hundreds of vocals, and a two-track mix. And then what I'd do is I'd use that two-track mix to monitor and I'd mix the resultant notes and chords with the help of Paul, the other brother, because he'd been a musician. I could show him what I wanted and he could be more repetitive than me. I'd get it wrong. So between us, we were playing these vocals and the output of the playing, I'd record onto another two-track and then I'd sync, fly that in to the master. 
So I ended up with lead vocal, backing vocals, two synths, and this mix of these vocals. And it was stunning. It was otherworldly. Everything worked. And it was a hit, too. It was a hit. And I wanted to ask, they asked you, can you also make a record? This was actually just a single. Mm-hmm. And in my mind at first, when you said record, I was thinking like, you know, oh, yeah, eight, sorry. 10, 12, single. Yeah. But But it was going to be a single. So it was... Not just a concern of creating so many more seconds. That's why you were saying it's going to take two and a half plus minutes. What I'm curious about in all that is from the first time you arrived and you met these folks to when it was complete, had the relationship improved? Was was it a little more? No. No? No. Oh. How we got through it, two things. One I found out afterwards, honestly, and the other one was that I left them behind technically. They were being directed. They were performing, no doubt about it. And they wrote the thing, no doubt about it. But the sound was all me. Right. Right. The arrangement was all me. Other than Kieran's fingers on the prophet, where he actually made the changes on the chords, that's all Kieran. But in terms of the global sonic, that was me. The other contributing factor was, I think my tea was laced with something. (laughs) No, I was so, I mean... So contact high with these brothers. I mean, they were, the air was thick, you know. None of that was a problem. It all enabled me to be as free as I wanted to be, which I don't know otherwise how it would have turned out. But either through contact high or something else, I don't know, I was in charge and they were in awe. Anybody around it was in awe. It was me, but it was a result of millions of hours of input from other people that I'd ingested as well. In fact, it even became popular in America because many years later, Volkswagen put out an advert for their current Passat. And to find out more about the Passat, there's an 800 number. And they underscored it with this music because it was ethereal and it was sweeping mountain roads and all that such. And Volkswagen were inundated with calls about what music is there. This is years later. Years later, yeah. What was the name of the song? Theme from Harry's Game, a band called Clanad. And ironically, the little sister that wasn't old enough to be in the band was Enya. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. not that amazing? Wow. And, okay, and look so- at the sound that she's got, which is incredible. Probably nothing to do with me, but it just goes to show how that voice, that sound, family... Just incredible. Yeah, but don't you think that based on that thing that you helped create with these guys? I would never in a second suggest that. Okay. Maybe she ingested some, like I did, but if you compare what she's done Mm -hmm. with her team to what I did, it's mega steps forward. She is. Okay. But mine was unique and wonderful. And it's themed from Harry's Game? Harry's Game. Harry apostrophe S. The other thing was funny as well. I was in the movie theater watching Patriot Games. You know, Harrison Ford? Yeah, Tom Clancy. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a scene where the bad guy's going to get another bad guy in a little cottage on a deserted moor. I'm listening to this thing. James Horner did the soundtrack for that movie. Mm -hmm. And he was influenced by that track too. And they actually used the song in the movie. I'll put a link in the show notes for the audience so they can go and look that up. It is really good. 
It really is. It's the best thing I've ever done. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Samply.app. Check it out. And I know I keep hounding you about this, but what I'm really curious about is when did you come to America? Oh, what year? Well, again, Peter moved. By now, he's, he's got a couple of kids, and he moved from L.A. to Nashville. It was the Christmas 1989. And he said, why don't you come over? Because I was already having done the Wilburys and all that sort of stuff, so I'm already doing stuff in America, but on an ad hoc thing, you know. I wasn't living here. And so I came over. I just got a divorce and his wife, Peter's then wife, Irene, said, we're having a New Year's do and I'm inviting a lady from the subdivision over there. You could just see it. Pete's house was like five acres and and just the end of his garden was the peripheral of a subdivision. So I'm literally looking at the house. She said, you see that house there? She lives in that house and she's just got a divorce too. So Irene's trying to matchmake, yeah. No way did I want to have any relationship. Thank you very much. <laughs> and the lady's name is Carolyn. Anyway, she came over and we chopped up some vegetables for a dip and stuff like that in the kitchen. Lovely girl. But we didn't say anything other than passed a knife or whatever. And that was that. And I went back to work, working on, I think working on Into the Great Wide Open, Tom Petty, mm. at Rumbo in Canoga Park. And I finished up there and, I, and Pete said, well, stop on the way back. So I did. I came back to Nashville to see Peter. It was about March, I guess. And again, Irene said, we're going out for dinner. Come with us and I'm inviting that lady you met. I said, fine. So we went out for dinner, restaurant in Franklin, and that went really well. Three dates later, I asked her to marry me. <laughs> and that front, that house is my house. The house on the edge of that subdivision. Yeah, I sold my I sold my house in England, my second house in England, and bought this one with Carolyn. 
Does Peter still live a short, yeah, he a lives, short distance he lives away? In, he lives in Franklin now. Okay. And he's been married and divorced again since then. But he was still in the studio yesterday. So as old as we are, you know, it's amazing. We're both still working. couple of questions. When did you really make the jump into the mainstream? Because, <laughs> I mean, you know, working with Traveling Wilburys and Tom Petty. Mentally or, or probably more actually. Oh, no, properly, you know. Properly. Because... Mentally, it's when you get your first number one. Okay. Well, when did you get your first number one? 1974, Kung Fu Fighting. You're shedding me. No. You did that? Yeah. <laughs> That's a lovely little story. That's song number four on a 10 to one session. Started at 10 minutes to one, take two. How about that? That's amazing. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's... Uh, it doesn't sound very good, but it was a great record. <laughs> oh, but I can hear it in my head. It doesn't doesn't really matter. The song, everybody yeah. who just heard this passage right now has it in their head. Yeah. And then that same producer had an artist called Tina Charles, not necessarily known in America, but she uh, was a good artist, but she had a few number ones too. So that's when I, I guess inside I thought maybe I'm going to be okay at this. And having those under your belt kind of helps you go freelance as well. Because nothing impresses people more than success. Yeah. And uh, whether it sounded good or not, but it's number one, it's a good sound. Because everything that's number one sounds good. Because <laughs> you know? everybody wants to be number one, so they all copy it anyway. But being part of that was, was a great asset. Mentally, it was a bit embarrassing as well. And do you feel that when you... When you have a successful song, does your career just continue to build on that one and, and move forward? Can I say something that sounds a bit rude? Oh, please say it. It's the same as getting your first Grammy. It's a milestone. It sets you up for two things, potential for more and the fear of never doing it again. Mm. And they got those two things tugging at you. Historically, you can do it, apparently, but shit, can you? <laughs> You know, when I said about being a bit rude is that I'm lucky enough to have five Grammys. Yeah. And who knows, been nominated for more. But again, having the Grammy doesn't really mean much to anybody that knows. But to everybody that doesn't, it's an amazing thing. Your relatives, neighbors. Those outside of the industry. Yeah, they, they all think it's fantastic. And they also all think it comes with millions of dollars, which actually costs you money to get a Grammy. <laughs> You've got the air flight, the hotel, wife's clothes, you know, and all that sort of stuff. You know, rent a tux or buy a tux. You know when your ego's out of control is when you buy your own tux. Right. Mine's well. in the closet. <laughs> <laughs> what, your ego or the tux? <laughs> Both of them. No, thank God they're adjustable. <laughs> yeah, it's a kiss of death. You buy your tux, you never get another one, you know. <laughs> what do you think? I know that we we've skipped around a bit and we've we've definitely concentrated yeah. on the early days a bit, but if you look back and you analyze it a bit, what do you think has been the key to you continuing to work? I don't want to say your key to success, but your key to people who continue to come back to you and more people who continue to hire you. What what do you think it is that you've set yourself up for? Like I think in some cases if there is a thing, part of it is caring more maybe than most people do about that particular item that I'm dealing with. 
applying my standards, which in some cases are even I can't achieve, to every project I touch. So hopefully I don't let anything out the door less than it can be. You know that uh, recruiting thing, be all you can be? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what has to happen with every project I, I'm involved in. And if I feel that I haven't enabled it to be all it can be, then I've not been successful. So whatever that takes, if that means keeping George Harrison and Jeff Lynn from hitting each other or trying to out-ego each other or whatever the case might be, or outdo each other rather, then that's my role. If my role's deciding on which member of the Travelling Wilburys gets what percentage of what song, then that's my role. And I've done both. If it's driving someone to the airport, if it's giving them a shoulder to cry on, all parts of the job that enable that entity to be all it can be. What would get in the way of that? What would get in the way of, of a project being all it can be? And how do you avoid that? A stronger ego that is wrong. I work for people as much as work with them. And when you're working for someone, you're subservient to their requirements. And if they screw up, so do you. Hmm. By the same token, as my record will show, I've grabbed onto many a fantastic coattail <laughs> and gone along for the ride. Also, looking back, I mean, I would assume at this point you've managed to get a grip on the finances of being an audio professional and in order to continue to make a living. Because some people can take a wrong turn. Some people can, you know, dump it all into drugs. Some people can overbuy an equipment and overextend themselves. Yeah. What do you think is one of the better ways to operate as an audio professional and have longevity financially? There's different categories to this response. Attitude. Be subservient to a degree, but also be confident and speak up. Make sure that when you speak up, you consider the effects of what you're about to say before you say it. For example, you're on a session and the producer or the person in charge is an idiot and they're being, what they're doing and saying is detrimental to the project, in your opinion, my opinion. How do you get what is probably a better idea across past the idiot that's responsible for it not going right? You need to word your comment and time. Timing, of course, as you know, crucial so that you can get your idea across without demeaning anyone or causing yet more problems. In other words, let's say the producer's bill. You might find the timing just right where you can say, hey, Bill, how about that idea you had earlier? And while they're still trying to think about what idea they had earlier, you express your idea, <laughs> right? So if you make your objective only to improve the project and not enhance your own cred. Hey, I've got this great idea. Right. You're out the door, yeah, especially with somebody that's causing a problem. They're going to get rid of you because you're an even bigger problem. So you kind of enhance the session wherever you can. Hmm. And if that means keeping your mouth shut and not sidetracking, you do that too. As you know, you know the greatest asset you can have as a recording engineer is to not get in the way of something good can I just try this other mic? Like, no, <laughs> the, the heart, screw the mic, you know, <laughs> wrong. On the other hand, it's like, it's not going well. You can step up and say, can I just listen to your cans balance? And you go out there and it's fine. And you say, oh my God, how can you possibly sing with this? Why didn't you tell me it was so bad? 
and you give them a break while you fix whatever is wrong, which is nothing. And you go back in and you've given them an opportunity to step up, remake themselves. Mm. Everything that's gone before, not their fault. Somebody else's fault. It's your fault. Right. And, and on the other side of it, you can take advantage of that session. There are times when you can win. You've got a room full of people expecting a lot of you. And it just so happens to be one of those days where the drums sound amazing. And everyone's coming up, wow, this sounds fantastic. And the timing's right. And the opportunity's there. So you go, hang on a sec. And you pull all the faders down. And you go out. And you twist a couple of microphones a fraction of an inch. Go around, touch everything. <laughs> and then you come back in and you put all the faders back exactly where they were, but just a bit louder. Trumps sound amazing. What did you do? Oh God, what it, did you change? It, it just, it just, just touched. It's just amazing. It's harmless, but that's when you get payback for all those, oh, your can sound terrible. Oh, you had this great idea earlier. And you're building your own little legend. There's a bit of magic involved there, a little sleight of hand, a little deception. Yeah. Well, it's all illusion, isn't it? I mean, even more so today than it ever was. It doesn't exist, and then it does. Hmm. Yes. It's out of thin air, as it were. Yes, yeah, it's, it's a fabulous business, and it's so much better now. I find it strange that I say that, but everything, your gear is so much more reliable. Mm-hmm. You don't have to sit there wondering if it's going to keep working. Is there going to be enough tape on the spool because they're still playing? It's meant to be a three and a half minute song and this is five minutes, you know, because they've, they've got a roll going and it's, oh, shit. Or somebody says, quick, let's just go into another one. Two, three, four. And it's like, no, 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 no. I've only got a minute's worth of tape left, you know. But <laughs> and that's interesting to hear because you're somebody who in your teenage years got started and have mm -hmm. seen quite a bit of change over the years of not just the industry, but the technology and, and yep. how things yep. function. And mm -hmm. a lot of people really opine about, oh, I wish we could do it the way they used to do it in, in the old days. But from <laughs> your perspective, you're probably like, well, no, I'm no. very happy with the tools we have today. Because, I mean, even the cheap stuff is fairly reliable. Oh, it's brilliant. Yeah. And a few of today's artists are probably capable of recording the old way, but they don't know what the old way is. The old way isn't turning up in a limo when you want, spending as much time as you want doing it the old way and an entourage and all that. That's not the old way. The old way is being ready to go into the studio because the studio is where you record. The generally, the, the meat and potatoes of, of everything. Of course, there were exceptions, people with enough budget to turn up to a studio late with only drugs, no other ideas, mm -hmm. the examples and the exceptions of, of everything. But generally today to be able to say, I'm going to do this now, that wasn't the old way of doing anything. The old way of doing anything was getting several people available at the same time as the recording facility was available and going in then knowing that you've got until then to get it right. And to do it again meant redoing all that. Even a mix meant going in mm. all again. Documentation in the early days was the title and what was on each track. That was it. Wow. Yeah. Something else that I'm aware of, at some point you started mastering. Yeah, about 2000. Am I incorrect in saying that 
you master a lot of stuff that you mix or do you keep the two separate? Well, unfortunately, is I, I don't mix much anymore. Yes is the answer. Okay. But but I don't – not now because I don't mix because there's no money in it. Right. When I say it's not enough money in it, sorry. There is money in it but not enough. And today to be economical, you have to mix in the box. Mm-hmm. You notice I put the word have to, the words have to. That shouldn't apply to anything, but it does. The have to in my early days was you have to be there on time. That was the have to. Right. And you have to do your best. That applies to both days, yesterday and today. But, you know, it's like disappointments in the early days were people not performing to their ability or gear breaking, breakdowns of gear or breakdowns in performance. Today, disappointments are more a case of never knowing when to, when it's finished, Mm -hmm. because it's never finished, literally, and it not sounding good, because digital doesn't sound good. It's perfectly acceptable, apparently, but it's not good. It's not up to the standard that you would like it to be. It's above the standard that it was, Uh way above, and it's improving, but it's still not good yet. Mm. A lot of the old stuff was terrible as well, but we had goalposts. There are no goalposts anymore. In an American football analogy, you can put the ball down anywhere now and call it a touchdown. We used to have to fight and get it across the line. Right. And the line was always where it was. You always had zero VU. You always had 15 or 30 IPS. That's what you had. You always had the performance you were given to work with and stuff like that, and and a time when it was going to be finished, period. None of those apply. Mm. I could finish and master a song today and in a few weeks' time make it not available to the public anymore and put a different one in its place. You can't go around somebody's house grabbing their seven-inch single and say, I've got a better mix now. Give me that one. Here's this one. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, so mastering, you started, you said in 2000, you started doing. About 2000, yeah. Yeah. And I assume that you enjoy it. Yeah, I've come to enjoy it. Yeah. Because I'm guilty about what I thought of mastering engineers when I was first starting. Which is? They had abilities that got in the way of what I wanted Uh, and requirements. There was a mechanical world with finite options and expensive equipment that had safety valves, as it were, in the way of being 11. Right. To the extent that they, most of them would settle for nine, just to be safe, you know? <laughs> and again, America and Britain, with maybe two exceptions, a lot of the American cutting en- mastering engineers, cutting engineers, as they were, would be more like 9.9, would be where they would, might be safe. You know, it was a bit nine in England, it was a bit nine. They'd risk more and achieve more. It's that attitude thing, you know, cowboy. Yeah. Back to the cowboy thing. You know, if they got an important artist and they want to make a name for themselves, they'd go to that point where they risked a $10,000 cut ahead just to get just a bit more out of it and ramp up that helium, whatever it was they were using to cool it. And they would just, and they'd be on the edge. In England, they were taught, don't you dare go anywhere near. Anywhere near 100. You don't go there. Because who knows what happens after that. Whereas in America, it's like, I wonder what happens after that. <laughs> and sometimes it's not a good result. 
but until someone does it, I mean, my granddaughter, I took her to, and she was tiny, to Taekwondo. And the master, I was shocked. He was, you know, part of the lesson would be in a little anecdote. But this one day he came and he said, you know, there was a time when an athlete knew that he couldn't, because scientists have proven that you couldn't run a mile in less than four minutes. Just not possible for a human being to do it. And no one did until Jack Bannister did. And within months, many were doing it. Yeah. He had shown the world, he'd shown himself first, but he'd shown the world that a human can run faster than four minutes and not die, not overstress their body and do all the things that various people were saying would happen to a human being attempting to run a mile in under four minutes. And now that's just a part of history. Hmm. And therein, although he was British, therein lies more the American attitude of what if? And the other thing that is great about living and working in America, and though that isn't your question, and about mastering, actually, and about me, is I don't mind going past that point and then trimming it back, making a, to myself, making a fool of what I'm doing. I don't mind making it sound bad to find out at what point it sounds bad and then coming back a bit until it sounds until good. Until just the edge. Yeah, because unless you're at the edge... You can't see over. Huh. Yeah, and, and the other thing you've got to think about is, does yesterday's edge apply today? That's right. Yeah, or remember how much it hurt going across that line. So you can take that to the bank, as it were, as well. You don't want to feel like that again. You won't be that embarrassed or that, that bad or that stupid. But there are points at which, you know, you look at a piece of gear and you look at input and output, at one point in your career, you've got to consider that those are maybe suggestions. You know, the world is changing. Our world's changing. And the best bit about today is there are no limitations. It's so much it's the bad bit. I had a problem at, in the earlier days of digital, and I've been through the whole life digital so far. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was atrocious. It was embarrassing. And we were forced to use it. And what I say about the goalposts, in analog, we could have improved analog. We could have, instead of being 15 to 30 on tape, we could have been something like 22 and a half IPS with the optimum. We weren't, that's not standard, you can't do that. Or we could change the EQ from CCR, NAB or AES, CCIR. You could have it optimized for that brand of tape, you know, completely optimized for that speed and that machine and that. No, 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 you can't do that. It's got to be standard, got to be fixed. Can't accept anything like that. Yeah, digital, oh, today we've got a different sample rate. We've got a different bit rate. And those converters are no good anymore. And it's like, what? You can't do that. Oh, yes, we can. We just did. All that reverb unit, that 8-bit reverb unit you bought for $8,000, that's useless. For 500 bucks, you can have this one that's 24-bit. You know, it's like, you can't do that. You can't steal that system you just bought for 32000 Well, actually, you can do that on your phone now. For 50 bucks. Yeah. You can't do that in analog, in real analog. You couldn't do that in analog, but you can do that today. So you've got to allow yourself to put a different value on what you did yesterday and what you're going to do tomorrow and embrace this technology. The plugins, terrible plugins. I mentioned earlier, Blackface 1176, Yuri Limited. And they'd have one in the early days and it looked exactly like it. And sounded and acted nothing like it. Terrible. 
In fact, Neve 1073 modules looked exactly like it. They were crap. People are still making this stuff as well. And some are making good versions. But where I learned to come to terms with it is like, okay, let's use the Blackface. There's a Blackface 1176 by a great company making plugins. Now, if I analyze it compared to a really great analog Black 1176, I'm going to be disappointed. However, if I reassess it and look at it as a toolbox in my new box, I look at it and say, what can I use that for to enhance my project? And I go, under these circumstances, it's brilliant. And one of the ways it's better than the real thing is that it's not going to break. It's not going to sound different tomorrow, better or worse. It's not going to sound different. Plus, I've got as many of them as I want. It's reevaluating. So what can you do for me today is a plugin. Right, right. But I mean, reevaluating analog versus digital stuff. I mean, you know, Chad Blake has said it before. He said the analog stuff does a particular thing. The digital stuff does an entirely different thing, and I approach it very differently. That's right. It's not an apples-to-apples apples no. thing. No, uh, he's absolutely correct. He's brilliant, too. But, I mean, he's absolutely correct. But for me, it took a long while. I mean, we mentioned got getting into mastering. I remember what happened. It started first with someone saying they can't afford to master something. You know, it's too expensive. So I said, well, I'll do it for you then. So I just did it. It was only a single, and they took it to somewhere else to have the codes added and, and to make the 1610 and all that shit. Because I wasn't going to buy any of that crap because I hated it. Talk about the early days of digital, yeah. Yeah, I hated that shit. The domestic one, the F1, the little PCM thing, I loved that. That was brilliant. But the professional stuff, horrible. Then I do, people say, can you do this for me? And I, and I would. But the real turning point came when I convinced an artist with a very low budget to go to Los Angeles to master their project. And meanwhile, I had already mastered it for them so they could hear what it would be like, something like it like when it was properly mastered. And I made them a little CDR of their album. And so they went to Los Angeles and they mastered their project, came back and they said, the mastering's done, would you like to hear it? So I said, well, are you happy? He said, well... Can we bring it over and play it to you? So I said, sure. And it was quieter and more distorted and sounded like crap compared to what I gave them. Hmm. And it cost them a lot of money. Hotels, flights, and the fee. I thought, holy shit, this isn't right. How can this be? I ended up having to call the mastering engineer and say, just DS what's on the CD I sent you. Change the sequence to the one they want. Call it done and don't charge them anymore. I did a project in my studio. I just built a studio and the first project I did in it, I mixed it to half inch and I used one of those TC finalizers mm -hmm. as well, just to give the artist an idea and myself an idea what it might be like. And I went to New York to a really great mastering engineer, now deceased, to master the project with the artist. I put the half inch on and it's a couple of hours and he's EQing this song for a couple of hours. On. And... It doesn't sound great. So I said, do you think there's a bit more we can get out of it? He goes, no, that's, that's it. So I said, can I play you something? So he said, sure. So I gave him my CD. He put it on. He's like, you could literally hear his jaw hitting the ground. Hmm. 
and he blew his speakers off the wall and it sounded fantastic in his room. It sounded dynamite. He goes, what's that? I said, well, that's my version of what I thought it could be. He goes, well, give me the tapes that you got that from and I'll, and I'll do it. I said, you've got them. He said, no. He said, there's no way that came from that. I said, you got a couple of XLRs. He said, what do you mean? Well, just in case they wanted a reference to anything, it's only a 1U unit. Right. I brought it with me in my carry-on. Oh. You know. <laughs> so I come out the ATR into the finalizer, hooked his leads up back to the output with the finalizer, called up the song that was on the thing. I said, ready? Right, go ahead. Bang, there it was. So we pretty much used my CD. So those particular experiences with you getting involved in mastering and then being underwhelmed by some of the work that some of the other people were doing out there, did that lead you deeper into it? Well, you see, the, to be fair, and I really mean to be fair, they were transitioning from analog to digital too. Oh. And just not many of them were very good at it, but they were really good at analog. And the same things do not apply. Analog methodology and digital methodology are extremely different. And unless you, as I have discovered, analyze your opponent, you don't stand a chance of capturing or influencing in a positive way. If you just simply apply techniques from one to another, it's like driving in a different country. Even if they drive on the same side of the road, if you don't see how they drive, mm -hmm. you're in trouble. Yeah. Driving in Europe and driving in Trinidad aren't the same. <laughs> Interesting. It's a completely different attitude. Yeah, but the cars are the same. Do you, you have a, a mastering place in your house or do you have an outside facility? I have an outside facility and a house, an identical setup in two places. Okay. So I prefer my home situation. Yeah. Because there's no people dropping in to say hello. I don't have clients here at all, ever. Yeah. And I do better work without client. Because of that thing I said about finding out where the edge is, you can't do that. You can't blow somebody's music up and expect them to unhear it. Right. You can't do it. That's one of the dangers of today's thing is because there's no goalposts, you get an artist will send to a mix engineer a mix that is completely impossible level and standard that is in completely impossible to live with because it's too distorted and it's just horrible. But you try and tell them that they can't have it that loud. So now the mix engineer has got to present a mix that is as horrible as the demo he was given and send that to mastering. And if he's smart, he'll send one that's safe to the mastering engineer and pass the buck. He'll send the artist the shitty one that they approve and they'll send a reasonable one to the mastering engineer and say, <laughs> go for it. Yeah. And if he doesn't send you what the artist has approved, and I always ask for that, then you're in hell because you're going to send them something half the volume and they're not going to like it. Hmm. It'll sound better, but they're not going to like it. Volume wins. Always did, always will. And obviously you've stayed in, in Tennessee. You're in Franklin? Brentwood. Brentwood. Brent okay. Yep. Do you ever see going back to England? Or are you, are you set? Oh, you mean to, to live? You mean yeah. to move back to England? Yeah. No, no. I've even got a little pot to put my ashes in here. <laughs> <you know? laughs> wow. 
Well, Richard, it's been great talking to you. At some point in the future, I, I will return to Nashville and reach out because I would sure. love to sit and, and talk with you. I, I, I just enjoy sitting here listening to you talk Ramble. about these things. <laughs> no, I, I honestly do. It's, it's very fascinating because you've presented a lot of great, not just stories, but anecdotes and something to give us all to think about. And I really like that. So I, well, I, it's, it's, it's funny. Thank you very much. I don't know whether I'm going to enjoy these things or not. And I did. Thank you. You know, it's, it's wonderful. It's, it's, it's better than having to write a book. It is because you could just verbalize. Yeah. Somebody else has to edit it. You know, That's it's, right. It's, <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> Thank you, Anne-Marie. And clear it up, you know, but, um, if I did write a book, it, I'd do it different from anybody else. I mean, that's there's only one book that's really, really good, and that's John Lennon Called Me Normal, and that's Norman Smith, Hurricane Smith, the engineer, the Beatles engineer, the real Beatles engineer. That's a brilliant book. John Lennon Called Me Normal. I'll put that in the show notes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's brilliant. Okay. It's entertaining, very informative, and a great book. The others are all what they are. 20% of them are interesting and 80% of them are hating somebody. <laughs> it's, I wouldn't do it like that. If I did a book, I'd, I'd start at the end. I'd start with today. And work your way. Yeah, to the beginning. So it gets more interesting. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, I really, you're telling of your early days working and getting into, first getting into, into the studio. I think you did a great job, so. No, thank you. Thank you. Any, living proof, anything's possible. <laughs> Thank you again. I appreciate it. Well, thank you very much. I enjoyed it. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Richard Dodd here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. And I know I'm very repetitive when I say this, but remember, you can always suggest a guest for the show if you go to workingclassaudio.com and fill out, now this is the key part, the guest suggestion form. Not the contact form, but the guest suggestion form. Do that. We'll consider your recommendation and uh, hopefully get them on the show. So that's it. I want to thank my crew. That includes Anne-Marie Plow in the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song, and that voice you hear every time at the beginning of the show, that's Chuck Smith, the great Chuck Smith. Connect with me on LinkedIn, and until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like, 
and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out. 